0: I will never forget the first time that I ever had to go to the emergency room for myself because although I walked into a a very crowded emergency room, I got to go in way before other people who had been there for a long time. And I remember initially feeling kind of guilty. Like I just cut in line These people have been here all night and I just went right in. Until I remembered that Unlike most public services, the emergency room is not a first-come, first-serve kind of service. And the hospitals in general, they have to practice something called triage. And triage is basically just the practice of determining which emergencies are more emergencies than others. Right? Determining the levels of severity to every emergency so that the people who need the help most get it first. Right? So this is why if a guy comes into an emergency room with... With, uh, with symptoms of a heart attack or, or like a gunshot wound to the chest, he's going to get help before the guy who came in because his hand was hurting and he think maybe he broke a finger or something. Right? Not that a broken hand is okay, but certainly we want to treat the heart attack before we treat the broken hand. So hospitals sort of have to determine. They have to sort of make judgment calls on which emergencies truly are life-threatening versus which can wait. And this is a, a helpful analogy for theology because the Christian church has to do the, triage as well. We have to do theological triage. right? Now obviously, I think it goes without saying, ideally every one of us would want to know the truth on every point of doctrine. Right? It's, it's never fun to believe anything false even if it's insignificant. We want to know everything that's true. But we also understand that there are some truths more important than others. There are theological doctrines that are more important than other theological doctrines. And so the reverse of that is there are theological errors that are more severe than other theological errors. There are some things that you can be wrong about and still see Christ on resurrection day. There are other theological errors that you can make which are life-threatening. If you make that error, you will not see Christ in the resurrection except for in judgment. Some errors are theologically life-threatening emergencies. And historically, many of the errors that the church has recognized here is an error that is life-threatening, involve Our study of doctrine that we call Christology, which is the study of Christ. Christological errors or Christological heresies are false ideas specifically about Jesus that keep a person from knowing God savingly. And church church history shows that Christians have always viewed getting Christ right, knowing Jesus the right way, as something of top theological importance. To get Jesus wrong is a severe theological emergency. At least from the perspective of of church history. So I want to ask the question, are they right? How important is the doctrine of Christ? Does it really matter how accurate we are about Jesus? And if we determine that Jesus is that important, we need to get Jesus right. What does that mean exactly? What about Jesus do I have to know that's so important? For example, if you see pictures of Jesus, although our Reformed tradition doesn't encourage pictures of Jesus, but they exist. If you see a picture of Jesus, typically he has long hair. I personally don't believe Jesus did have long hair. I think Jesus had short hair. Am I going to go to hell? Am I wrong about Jesus? Do I have a false Jesus? Right? What errors, what about Jesus? If, if, do, if the doctrine of Christ is really that important, what specifically, what do we need to know about Jesus? Well, the good news for us is I'm not saying that our text today is necessarily exhaustive. But our text today, whether implicitly or explicitly, explicitly, is going to give us seven, well technically eight, it'll be seven points, but eight things that you must get right about Jesus. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 8, verse 12. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. We're going to read through verse 30. And if you would, when you were there, stand for the reading of God's word. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. This bars the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. Last week, Jesus preached the gospel of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through a water metaphor. And we said this was most likely done because during the feast that Jesus is still at preaching, the Feast of Tabernacles, on the last great day when he preached these two sermons, one of the ceremonies that was done was a water pouring ceremony. And so this most likely is what prompted him to preach the gospel in a water metaphor. And I think that something similar is happening at the beginning of our text today. Jesus preaches another sermon, but he's changed metaphors. He's no longer talking about being the source of water, which will spring up like a well within you into salvation. He's changed from water to light. He claims to be the light of the world or the light of life. And I think that this was also prompted by another ceremony that took place on the great and final day of the last feast, or of the feast. Because one of the other ceremonies they did, other than the water pouring ceremony, was a lighting of the lights ceremony. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people, because remember the whole Feast of Tabernacles is remembering that time when the Jews were wandering in the wilderness and they had to live in Tabernacles. And so many of their ceremonies were commemorating different events and aspects of that. And if you recall, one of the amazing miracles that God performed constantly for the people is that, there was a glory cloud where his presence was. And that cloud is what they followed. So he, they, he led them on with his presence. And even at nighttime, when they wanted to leave, he would provide them light through a pillar of fire. This is found in Exodus 13. And they moved from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So they wanted to remember this amazing miracle, this pillar of fire that gave them light, and this light led them to the promised land. And so one of the ways that they would remember that is they had these lamp lighting ceremonies. There would be these massive torches, these massive lamps, and these four massive lamps would all be lit, And then eventually, once the sun went down, the people of Israel would themselves light their own torches. And they would dance, and they would sing psalms, and there would just be a big celebration all night long, lighting up. It's kind of like their version of Christmas lights, right? Just celebrating the light that led to life with these lamps and with these torches. And so Jesus then uses that, whether he preached this before or after, I'm not sure. But Jesus uses that as sort of a springboard to teach these people that I am the fulfillment of Exodus 3. I am the fulfillment of the type of the cloud of fire. I am the fulfillment for I am now the light that will lead you to the promised land. If you're looking for life, you're in the dark. I'm the light that you can follow that will lead you to eternal life. Jesus is essentially claiming what we just sang about in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is saying, I am the only way to salvation. Outside of me is nothing but darkness. If you want to know how to get to heaven, follow my light. I'm now the pillar of fire for the people of God. And as you can imagine, this is just yet another one of those grandiose claims that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. This time it's interesting because apparently the Pharisees show up to hear it this time in person. If you remember last week, Nicodemus encouraged his colleagues, we should probably hear the guy out before we judge him to death. Apparently, whether they're reluctantly or not, they take him up on that advice. So they show up for this sermon and they hear Jesus claiming to be the only way of salvation, to be the only light that God has provided to lead you to the promised land. And they immediately reject him because according to the judicial law of the Old Testament, a crime cannot be established without two witnesses. And they think you can just apply that over here. And so they're saying, listen, Jesus is just making these huge claims without any evidence. Dismiss him. Dismiss him. They tried to dismiss him. And what's interesting is they already did that earlier in the Gospel of John. We've heard this argument from the Pharisees before. It just goes to show you the Pharisees, they don't really have many arguments against Jesus. We continuously see them recycle the same three things. He's from Nazareth, not from Bethlehem, which if they just asked him, they would know that that's wrong. He is not, he, he's speaking on his own authority. There's no evidentiary confirmation. And Jesus actually goes on in this text and earlier in the Gospel of John to say, my miracles are the evidentiary confirmation from the Father. So that's why Jesus tells them, I'm not speaking on my own authority. The Father has testified to me. I've been, ra- I've been healing the sick. I've been performing miracles. Why would God give me the power to do that if he wasn't on my side? So their, their first argument can be dismissed because they didn't even ask Jesus about it. Their second one, Jesus has already refuted. Oh, and then their favorite one is that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath because he's been doing all these things on on Saturday. And Jesus, again, we saw earlier in John, refuted that claim too. They have very little evidence against them, and they've been soundly refuted every single time. And this is why in the text Jesus tells them that they judge according to the world. They judge according to the flesh. Just like we saw two weeks ago, Jesus is constantly getting on these people for their superficial, worldly judgments. If they actually approached it with biblical standards and integrity, they would judge Jesus more rightly. Jesus even tells them, the first part of my mission is not to judge, it's to save. The judgment comes later. But he says, even if I did come to judge, thank the Lord I wouldn't judge the way you judge. These, people, these, these Pharisees and, and anyone following them have these superficial worldly judgments that Jesus has twice now condemned them for. But what I love about Jesus in this passage that we read is that he doesn't just play defense. That's common. Jesus preaches, people disagree and he has to play defense. It's like he's on the ropes all the time. I love the way Jesus goes on the attack in this sermon. Jesus says, "It's time for me to play a little bit of offense. I'm done answering your questions. I'm done putting up with these worldly, superficial objections." And Jesus goes on offense. And there's no better time that we see the offensive firepower of Jesus than in verse 24. This is sort of the the most important verse in this entire passage. Look at verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Can I ask you a question? How much more impactful, how much more severe could a verse possibly be? Jesus is literally telling these people what they must do to avoid eternal judgment. To die in your sins, the layman's version of that is to go to hell. Right, because if if you die in your sins, that means you, you are dying in a state where your sins have not been paid for. So you have to go pay for them. And so the opposite of this is that apparently there's something you can do, there's something all of us can do to avoid dying in that state. You don't have to die in your sins. The Pharisees are going to, but we don't have to. We can die in forgiveness, we can die in right standing with God. And what do we do? Well, put shortly, Jesus says it's pretty simple. You believe in Him. To reject Jesus is to reject salvation. To reject Jesus is to reject salvation. And you can tell that Jesus' teaching in verse 24, you can tell that this made a huge impact on the apostle John himself who wrote this gospel because this becomes a huge theme of his in his epistles. Let me just give you one example, 1 John 2. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You see how John sees the Son and the Father is is linked, inseparably linked? You don't get God without Jesus. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. And if you reject God, you will die in your sins. We must believe in Jesus in order to be saved. You must believe in Him. Now, like I said, I think we've established the first question we asked in our introduction. Is the doctrine of Christ important? And the answer from Jesus is emphatically, Yes. Because if you get him wrong, you will die in your sins. It couldn't be more important. The church has been right throughout history to make Christological errors of utmost importance. Theological triage. Getting Jesus right. Utmost importance. If you don't, you will die in your sins. But let's answer the next question then. What about Jesus do I need to know then? Does his hair length matter? Does his height matter? What do I need to know about Jesus to be saved? I think that this text is going to provide us a pretty crucial foundation to answer that question. And so I'm going to give you a number. Like I said, we technically have seven points, but one of them is a twofer, so it's really eight. I'll let you decide. Whatever you want in your sermon notes, you can do it. Seven or eight, I don't care. Seven or eight points that you need to believe, that you must believe, or else you will die in your sins. Here's what you need to know about Jesus. Point number one, Jesus is God. Point number one, Jesus is God. Let's look at our key verse here, verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. This verse, and another one like it later on in the text, Is extremely popular among Christian scholars and academics. And the reason why is because the Greek grammar, which is something we kind of lose in the English translations, is fascinating for a couple reasons. The first one is that it's incorrect grammar. Jesus speaks a grammatically incoherent, incorrect statement in this verse uh, the, the, we lose this in the English the English translations typically soften this up so Jesus says what must you believe in order to be saved and, and the ESV reads you must believe that I am he your Bibles might say something similar I am he or I am that I am or I am that I said I am that word he or I am it's not in the Greek they add it in to make it a complete sentence but what Jesus literally says is you must believe that the Greek is ego I which simply means I am which is an incomplete sentence right if someone said who are you or where are you going and I just said I am they go you are what what are you where are you going who are you you don't answer the question it isn't interesting in the next verse verse 25 they ask him that question Jesus says you must believe that I am and what do they say in verse 25 I am what who are you (laughs) why are you leaving us in suspense he didn't answer the question he simply says you have to believe that I am now the reason why this is also so fascinating is because the Old Testament long before Christ was translated into Greek. And when we examine this ego I me, this statement I am, and we compare it to the Old Testament, we realize Jesus is doing something phenomenal here. He's claiming the name of God. This primarily shows up also in Exodus chapter 3. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God gave himself a name I am. That's his name, the name by which he will be remembered forever. It's the only name of God. Well, actually, there's one of two, I think. But it's one of the only names of God in the Old Testament that is never attributed to any other creature. In the Old Testament, there are some names of God that are given to angels. Some names of God are even given to very powerful men. This name, I am, in Hebrew is Yahweh also known as the Tetragrammaton. If you ever want to impress friends, you can remember that. Uh, It's YHWH, Yahweh. Which, by the way, we used to, just fun tidbit, um, the the evolution and translation of the Tetragrammaton has been difficult over history. This used to be pronounced Jehovah. So if you ever read an old hymn, or an old Bible, or an old sermon, and you hear someone call God Jehovah, there are they're calling him the same thing that we now think is probably better translated or tra- pronounced as Yahweh. We've kind of changed how we think those Hebrew consonants should be um, articulated. But Jehovah, Yahweh, same thing. Yahweh is the ultimate name of God, His eternal and forever name. No one else is allowed to be called Yahweh. This name is so sacred, by the way, that today Orthodox Jews will not say it, nor will they write it. If you ever see a Jewish person write, they will, they will write the word G-D. They won't put the O because they think it's sacrilegious to even utter the holy name. That's how important this name is. Jews won't even say it. It's the name of God forever and Jesus is claiming it for himself. You must believe that. Who are you? I am Yahweh. By the way, the the exact expression that Jesus uses is found multiple times throughout Isaiah 40 through 55, which matters because in that text, that's where God is comparing himself to the false gods to prove that he's the true God. The name of God represents the only true God. One example of that, Isaiah 40, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Again, Greek there would just be I am. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Jesus is making a big claim. He's saying that verse, that's about me. That's about me. You must believe that Jesus is the great I am. You must believe he is Yahweh. You must believe he is God. If you don't, you will die in your sins. The deity of Christ is of utmost importance. This is why one of the earliest Christian heresies, known as the Arian heresy, the Arians came along and said, Ah, we think Jesus has God powers, but he's not equal to God. He's, he's a created being. He came later on. God created him. He's, we should worship him. He's exalted. He's powerful, but he's not God. The, the early church very quickly said heresy. That's not just an error. That's a send you to hell kind of error. And Jesus is agreeing with the church. Unless you believe that Jesus is the I am, you will die in your sins. In other words, let me put it, to this, put it to you this way. If the Jesus that you worship isn't God, that Jesus cannot save you. The Jesus that is not God cannot save you. But what's also emphasized in this text is not just that Jesus is Yahweh, but we go back to a doctrine we've seen in so many chapters throughout John of how He is Yahweh. How can the Son of the Father be equal to the Father. How does that make sense? And so that's why we have to confess this second doctrine, which is that Jesus is the Son of God. Look at verses 14 through 19 with me. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I, am, where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, who is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also." The reason the Bible forces us to be Trinitarians is because it affirms that while there is only one God, there are multiple persons with that divine essence. There's just no getting around this in the Bible. Thus, Jesus is God, He is Yahweh, but He is not the Father. He has the Father's essence, though, because He is the Son. Jesus is God because He is the Son of God. And this is why Jesus calls God His Father. Because He is the Son of God, the one who comes from Him. So because Jesus and the Father share in essence, we've talked about this multiple times throughout the sermon series, Eternal Generation. Because they share in essence, they can both be the one true God. And it's because they share this essence that they are so Intri- so inextri- what's the word I'm looking for they're linked so closely that Jesus says it's impossible to have one without the other you can't have the father and not have the son you can't have the son and not have the father because they share this essence they share the same being and that's why anyone who denies that Jesus is the son of God can't be saved because to deny he is the son is to deny that he has the same essence which is to deny the deity which means you're not saved or better yet the other view which says that Jesus and the Father there's no difference between them it's the same person with different names John doesn't allow for that you can't be the son of yourself you can't be your own father there is a difference between the Father and the Son yet they share the same essence this is why we're Trinitarians and it is exactly why Jesus constantly refers to God as his Father now it's unfortunate that as is always the case throughout the Gospel of John, the people are not getting this. It is a deep doctrine. They think Jesus is talking about Joseph. (laughs) Right? Look at verses 24 through 29. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. This is his head to him. Who are you? Jesus said to him, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but He who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from Him they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority but I speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Jesus has been very clear even from the beginning that He is from the Father. He has more to tell them But because of their hardness of heart, they can't even understand this basic claim. But by God's grace, we have come to understand it. That Jesus is not the son of Joseph. From an adoptive human perspective, He is. But Jesus' true essence is from God. He is the Son of God. Point number two, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. in this text, in these texts that we just read, there's something implicit. Again, it's not explicit, but something very implicit that we need to believe, which is that the Son of God became incarnate. Point number three, that you must believe to be saved, is that Jesus became incarnate. Jesus is God incarnate. We see this all over. I want to emphasize, look at verse 23. He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. So Jesus is here making a claim that He is not of this world. Yet, He's in the world, right? Who are they talking to? (laughs) He's in the world. He's a flesh and blood human being standing eye to eye from these people talking, and He says, I'm not from the world. You are not me. Jesus is implicitly telling them that he is a heaven sent person who took on humanity and that's what we call the incarnation. Incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas time is just a Latin term to be embodied or to take on flesh. That the son of God, he who was God eternally became a man. He took on flesh. He is not of the world, but he did enter into it. He is not from the world, but he came into it. That's the incarnation that Jesus is a true human being. You must confess that. Everyone who denies the deity of Christ, by the way, necessarily denies this doctrine also because how can God take on flesh if Jesus isn't God, (laughs) right? But even if you do believe that Jesus is God, but yet for some reason still deny that he took on flesh, you're not saved. And you think, I've never met a person like that. They existed. One of the earliest, potentially the earliest Christological heresy was known as docetism and the docetists taught this very thing yes Jesus is God but he didn't really have a body he didn't really become a human being he just pretended like it he, they, they called it a, 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 like, a, like a phantom or a hologram it looked like he had a body because we can't converse with God so he needed to show up somehow but it wasn't true flesh and blood he wasn't really a human being that existed it was a popular view in the early church It was even gaining ground in the first century, which is why the the very author of our gospel had to refute it. 1 John, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. To deny that Jesus took on flesh makes you the Antichrist. (laughs) And this probably goes without saying, but the Antichrist can't be saved. We already confessed this, by the way, in the Athanasian Creed. We began that creed saying it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also faithfully believed that our Lord Jesus Christ became flesh. This is hinted at again in verse 28. Look at what Jesus says. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up who? The Son of Man. Not the Son of God, though they they would lift up the Son of God. But in this text, He refers to Himself as the Son of Man. Jesus, the Son of God, became a Son of Man. He is a true human being with a flesh and blood body that was capable of being crucified. And that leads us to our next point. The fourth thing you must believe about Jesus to be saved is that he was in fact crucified. Verse 28 again. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. So even though many people did in fact come to faith, we saw at the very last verse at the end of this sermon, Jesus is telling us the greatest example that you can possibly have, the greatest proof that you could possibly imagine for his claims are not his miracles, not his profound wisdom and elegant teaching, the thing that will make everyone, even his haters, see the truth of his claims is his death on a cross. When he lays his life down out of obedience to the Father and love for the covenant people. This was his chief act as our mediator that he died for our sins and one could not possibly deny this event and still know Christ. It is, it is the most crucial thing he did for our salvation and Jesus says here it's, it's the most important proof of who he is. So how can you deny the proof and still affirm who he truly is? No, if your Jesus didn't die on a cross that Jesus can't save you. If your Jesus didn't die on a cross, you're worshiping the wrong one. I don't know who you're worshiping, but it's not this one. Our Jesus, the true Jesus, was lifted up. And when he was lifted up, it became obvious to everyone that he is the I am. That the Son of God is, in fact, also the Son of Man. However, if you believe that Jesus died, but then conclude from that that he's still dead, you've got a really big problem on your hands. So it's not just enough to believe, point number four, that Jesus, the Son of God, the divine Jesus who took on flesh, died. You must also believe that he resurrected and ascended. If you want to be saved, you need to know that Jesus resurrected and ascended. These two things are oftentimes in Scripture attached together. Sometimes they're separated. Sometimes they're attached together. So that's why point number five is a twofer. You have to believe that Jesus resurrected and ascended. Look at verse 21 through 23 with me. So he said to to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. So here Jesus prophesies yet again of his ascension into heaven. He's done this once before, a couple of weeks ago, and remember they misunderstood him. They thought he was saying he was going to go out to the Gentile world. Now they still misunderstand him, but they've actually made some progress. Now they understand that when Jesus says, I'm going to a place where you literally, physically could not possibly follow even if you wanted to. They're thinking, we could, if we wanted, it would take some time, but we could go anywhere in the world. We can go anywhere. We can follow Jesus anywhere. So if he's claiming to go somewhere where it's literally impossible for us to go, he's claiming to die. That's the only place I can't go. So is he going to kill himself? Which is obviously not true. Horrible blasphemy. But it has the irony of the fact that Jesus did willingly lay his life down. But here they rightfully understand that when Jesus promises to go away to where they cannot go, when he promises his ascension, his death is entailed in that. He's not just going to do an earthly ministry and ascend. He's going to die and then ascend. And so, what has to happen in between there? The resurrection. Jesus is telling them, Yes, I'm going to die, but then I'm going to resurrect, and then I'm going to ascend to my Father to go back to my home where I came from. Because I'm not of this world. Jesus is affirming explicitly and implicitly his resurrection and his ascension from the dead. And if anyone believes in a Jesus that did not rise from the dead, if anyone believes in a Jesus who never ascended into heaven, where he is now, then that person will die in their sins. People typically know this about the resurrection. Paul makes it pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 15. But they often forget just how important the ascension is, which is the primary thing in view in this text. The ascension is crucial because Jesus, when he ascended, the Bible fills that out for us telling us what that means. And it tells us not only because he ascended is why he's able to mediate our salvation. So if your Jesus never ascended, you can't be saved. There's no, there's no one mediating for you in heaven. And we also know from passages like Philippians 2 that when Jesus ascended, it affirmed that he is in fact the Messiah, the Lord. And so if we're going to affirm the ascension, I think it's fair to say point number six we need to affirm is that Jesus is The Lord. He is the Lord of all. You must believe that in order to be saved. In, in a certain sense, I I don't even have a specific passage. You know, we could look at verse 21, but in a certain sense, this is sort of what the entire passage is actually getting at. The primary thing he's pointing us towards is that he is the Messiah, the one that the Father sent. I'm from the Father, He sent me, I'm the promised one, I'm the Messiah. And that is shorthand claiming to be Lord because that's who the Messiah was. He came to be the King, the Lord. And this is why Philippians 2 tells us that everything Jesus did was to be ascended and raised and given the name that is above all names so that at that name, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And so what does that tell you? That the ascension, the Lordship of Christ was sort of the chief aim of the gospel? So you think it's, it's probably pretty important that we believe that? that he's Lord, it's probably pretty important. This is, in fact, by the way, the very doctrine that began the first Christian persecution. The first Christians who were ever put to death were not put to death because they believed that Jesus was God. They were not put to death because they believed he was God incarnate. They were put to death because they said he's Lord. Caesar didn't care about their metaphysics. He cared about their obedience and their allegiance. And they said, we'll obey you, but not more than Jesus because Jesus is Lord of Caesar Jesus is Lord of America he's Lord of everything and everyone because he ascended to the right hand of God if you deny the ascension you deny the lordship of Christ and if you deny the lordship of Christ you will die in your sins Jesus must be the Lord in order to be saved and all of these doctrines lead us to one final point we've looked at sex so far They lead us to one final point. When you put all these things together, there's only one possible conclusion that you can draw from this. And it's the very thing that Jesus opened the sermon up with, which is that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Look at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus claims here to be the light of the world, not a light of the world, not one light among many lights. He is the only light that leads to life. Outside of Christ, there is nothing but darkness. Our day is a day filled with religious pluralists. That is, people who say that, yeah, Jesus might be your way to the Father, He might be my way to the Father. And that's, that's good and dandy, but he's not the only way to the Father. There are, lots, there are many. What destination do you know if it only has one path to it? Almost all destinations have multiple paths. So Jesus might be one way you take to salvation, but there's lots of other religions that lead to salvation too. And right? he's not the only way. Let me tell you this as severely as I can that's a false gospel. It's not enough just to say Jesus is my light. If he's not the only light, you will die in your sins. Jesus must be the only way to heaven. If you believe in a Jesus who's just one light among many equal lights, you are not saved. You do not know God. There is only one Son of God. There is only one Messiah. There's only one person who died for your sins. There's only one person who rose for your sins. There's only one person who ascended into heaven. There's only one person who took on flesh. Therefore, there can be only one way to be saved. No one else is your Messiah, no one else is your Savior, no one else is your God. There is one of each of these things, therefore He must be the only way. If you deny that, you deny everything else. There must be another Messiah, another Lord, another God, another King. It's a false gospel. It's not enough to believe Jesus saves you. He must be the Savior of the world. The only one who can save, that's the gospel. And that's why we come to church every Sunday And we stand firm and we continue to sing hymns like in Christ alone my hope is found. In Christ alone my hope is found. Everywhere else is darkness. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that was a long text and that was a lot of sermon points. How do I remember all this? Let's condense it, shall we? This is my how I would sort of condense all eight seven of these points into one sentence like if you want what's one what do I take away from the sermon today what do I go home and tell my friends and my family I learned today this is what I came up with Jesus Christ is the Lord the incarnate son of God whose death resurrection and ascension provide the only means of eternal life this is what Jesus wants the Pharisees to know and believe that he is the Lord the incarnate son of God whose death resurrection and ascension provide the only means of eternal life now here's the thing I'm not saying you have to like memorize this you know tattoo it on your wrist and read it the gospel's not a script the gospel can be preached in lots of different ways but my hope is one thing you'll take away from this sermon is you'll be reminded of some of these important bullet points that we can present to the world sometimes when we're out of our religious bubble and we, we find ourselves, God sort of pushes us against our will to have a religious conversation. We, we panic. What is the gospel? What do, what do I tell to people? It's, it's easy to panic in those moments. And my hope is that from this sermon, you'll maybe take away what are some of the things that's really important to touch on. When you tell people about Jesus, please don't leave out the fact that he's the son of God. When you tell people about Jesus, please don't leave out the fact that he's a man, he's a human being. When you tell them about Jesus, please don't leave out the fact that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead, and that he's Lord of all. These are all just important things as we present the gospel. This is the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to earth in incarnate in the flesh to die for our sins, rise from the dead, and ascend to heaven. And the last thing I will remember to tell you is call people to faith because what does Jesus say in verse 24? How do you access this incarnate son of God who died and rose? By faith unless you believe. Don't just tell people who Jesus is and not call them to believe it. Call people to faith in the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for our sins and rose for our justification.